This morning's reading is from Our Town by Thornton Wilder. The character who's speaking is the stage manager. There are a lot of things to be said about a wedding. There are a lot of thoughts that go on during a wedding. We can't get them all into one wedding, naturally, especially not a wedding in Grover's Corners where they're awfully short and plain. In this play, I take the part of the minister that gives me the right to say a few things more. Yeah, for a while now, the play gets pretty serious. You see, some churches say that marriage is a sacrament. I don't quite know what that means, but I can guess. Like Mrs. Gibbs said a few minutes ago, people are supposed to live two by two. This is a good wedding. The people are pretty young, but they come from a good state and they chose right. The real hero of this scene isn't on the stage at all, and you all know who that is. Like one of those European fellows said, every time a child is born into the world, it's nature's attempt to make a perfect human being. Well, we've seen nature pushing and contriving for some time now. We all know she's interested in quantity, but I think she's interested in quality too. Maybe she's trying to make another good governor for New Hampshire that's what Emily hopes. And don't forget the other witnesses at this wedding, the ancestors, millions of them. Most of them set out to live two by two, millions of them. Well, that's my sermon. It won't very long anyway. I've married 200 couples in my day. Do I believe in it? I don't know. Suppose I do, M marries N, millions of them. The cottage, the go-kart, the Sunday afternoon drives in the Ford, the first rheumatism, the grandchildren, the second rheumatism, the deathbed, the reading of the will. Once in a thousand times, it's interesting. That's all the second act, folks. Ten minutes into mission. <laughs> it's March. It doesn't feel like February outside. It's March, and so we turn the page in our liturgical year to a new month, a new theme. All of February, we talked about resilience, which is a good theme for February. In the midst of cold and dark, we talked about how we get through cold and dark, both outside and inside and in the world. But in March, we turn our attention to wisdom. Wisdom in its many, many forms. The wisdom of a still, small voice singing in the heart. Next week, we'll talk about the wisdom in data. I was very briefly a statistician before I was a minister, so I will talk about, I will preach about the wisdom of data next week, and I will, you may not enjoy it as much as I do. <laughs> but today, 
We talk about the wisdom of story. The wisdom of narrative. The wisdom of saying, this happened to this person, which meant that this happened, and here's what it means. Stories are ancient. They're Aesop. They're the parables of scripture. Storytellers, I think, are, were the first preachers. And sometimes there is nothing to a sermon other than to get up and just tell a story for a few minutes. And the thing that I keep coming back to this week is that stories can transcend the person telling them. So this thing happened a couple weeks ago. Um, I was invited to speak on uh, Stu Kearns' radio show. Um, does anybody listen to Stu, to Friendly Fire? One? All right. So AM <laughs> talk radio, 1440 at 7 AM on a Saturday morning. This is apparently not the, t not the target audience for that particular show. <laughs> Pastor Kearns is the, the minister at one of the conservative Presbyterian um, churches here in town, and, and uh, he has this radio show where he says that uh, talking about the news of the day through the lens of faith. Um, and Stu Kearns and I have probably never voted the same way in our lives. Um, nor do we have particularly similar theologies, but he intentionally invites people onto the show to have a dialogue. Um, it was a pleasure to be on. It was really good to, to be in conversation with him and frankly to be in a much different setting than we usually reach as Unitarian Universalists. But this thing happened. We had a little exchange. Um, and, uh, and then after uh, the radio show, I went on to the comment section of Facebook um, on the radio station's comment section. And, and you should never do that. Because <laughs> um, it turns out some of, the, some of the more conservative listeners, of whom there are several, um, <laughs> many, um, took exception to one of the things that I said. Stu had asked me as Unitarian Universalists, as, as me as a Unitarian Universalist, what I believe about the, the historical Jesus of Nazareth. Was that a real person? And I said, well, Stu, I think that's the wrong question to ask. Because we don't have a whole lot of historical evidence one way or the other. The only thing that we have are these gospels, which are written by people that presume a particular answer to that question. But what I believe and what I think is important is that the parable of the prodigal son says something profound and meaningful about the human condition. And it is profound and meaningful regardless of the, the historicity of the gospel. This did not go over well on the Facebook comment section. That nuance was lost. But that remains true. You know, it's, it's a thing that we are gifted with in our tradition. To see the truth in a thing 
that is the truth of metaphor, the truth of meaning, the truth that is beyond a simple, is this a historical fact? That is a piece of the stories that we tell. There's also a danger in taking any single story, and we'll, we'll talk more about this next week when I give my big data sermon. <laughs> but we can often take a single story and extrapolate universal meaning from it. And this is a mistake because often that doesn't quite fit. The story of the prodigal son says something profound about human nature but it doesn't say something that's universally true. It's the, the story of a child coming home to a parent who forgives with overflowing grace. I think that says something about our relationship to a loving God. But I also know, and it is also true, that there are family relationships that are too fractured for that to be a story that everyone can relate to. Sometimes in families, grace and forgiveness can be weaponized into enabling and allowing harm. So we can't use the same story in every way, in every situation. Stories are wild, complicated things. They are hard to pin down in a single telling. There might be 20 people in a room or 150. And we might have 30 or 200 different meanings in a story. So how do we approach them? The, there are stories that we tell through repetition. When you tell a story often enough and you start to internalize it. This is often true of scripture. I could close my eyes and tell the story of the prodigal son. It wouldn't be exactly what's in Matthew, but it would be pretty accurate. But it's also true for some people of Star Trek. And in my life recently, it is true that I can tell by heart the saga, the sung saga of Baby Shark. <laughs> or of Goodnight Moon. The other day, Stacy reminded me at the first service, the other day I got fully halfway through Goodnight Moon, paging through and reading it, before halfway through I went, are we on toys or mouses now? <laughs> What's the next one? Stories of repetition are a, a part of parenting, we'll say. But there are also stories of reverence, stories that we hear because they mean something, they say something about the world that we're in. Hearing a story at the solstice of a descent into darkness and return to light. And there are stories that we interrogate. Think of a, a psychologist writing about Hamlet. Religion tells stories where we do all three of those things. Repetition, reverence, interrogation, and we do them all at once. And if you're, if you're trying to think of a, an occasion where this is true, think of Christmas Eve, and reading the second chapter of Luke, where a child is born in a manger. It is repetition, 
at his reverence, and each year we interrogate that story. We ask what it means. In the language of faith, this, this idea of pulling meaning out of stories is called exegesis. It's Greek for drawing out. It's a way to experience a text multiple times from multiple angles, literally pulling meaning out of the story. And when you go to seminary, you learn, you learn by rote how to do exegesis. You learn a four or five step process that says, first you go through and do this, then this, then this, then this. Last Sunday, a week ago today, members and friends from this congregation gathered in the afternoon to read Thornton Wilder's Our Town, a play from 1938. And I was a part of that, and I, I was sitting in here, and I, I spent the next two days thinking about that reading and thinking about what it meant. And then I thought about, oh, I'm preaching on storytelling. What would it mean to exegete? our town. And so that's what we're going to do for the next 10 minutes or so. In exegesis, the first time you read through the text, you read for content and form. What is the story being told on its own merits? What's the plot and the sequence of events of the story? So our town is a contained story about the town of Grover's Corners, New Hampshire at the turn of the 20th century. It's a play in three acts. Each act has its own title. The first act is entitled Daily Life. It's a day in the life of the town of Grover's Corners, focusing on the Gibbs and the Webb family. Emily Webb and George Gibbs are children, though they have a, a certain fondness for each other, a certain flirtation in the way of 19... When does it take place? 1907. There we go. Act two is titled Love and Marriage and tells the story of Emily and George's wedding day and the courtship that led up to it. And in between act two and three, Emily dies in childbirth. And act three is titled Death and Eternity and, in be and the act takes place at the, ceremony, the cemetery as Emily's spirit talks with her dead mother-in-law and others. The second time when you're exegeting a piece of work, you start to notice places of discomfort in the story. Road bumps where it doesn't quite make sense, where you're uncomfortable in the moment of reading it. You read through it paying attention to what your body is doing in the moment. So, as a new parent, I have some questions about how the play ends. In the last moments of the play, George is left weeping at his wife's graveside. And then the play just ends, right there. Implicitly, he has lost both his mother and his spouse in rapid succession. He has a young child at home to raise alone in this small town. And every time I read it, I'm left wondering what happens? What's act four? This is clearly not the end of the story. So what comes next? This is more true having a young child now and identifying with that character. 
But there's another stumbling block in our town. Another place that drew our attention last Sunday and has drawn my attention since. First time I encountered this particular play, I was in high school. This is true of many of us. Maine Endwell High School put on a production of Our Town when I was 15 years old. I did lighting design. I was not one of the, the people that were brave enough to get up and speak in front of a crowd. And at that point, when I was 15, it was explained to me, and, and I accepted, that this was a story that was a classic because it was universal. That even though it takes place, it took place a century earlier, it said something universal about family life and about small town life. And something profound about marriage. It helped that I was in a relatively rural school district in upstate New York. It helped to think that it says something profound about the nature of marriage that I had not yet been married at the age of 15. <coughs> but it reads differently now. There's a distinctiveness to whose story is being told. The stage manager who is a character in the play and serves as, as the narrator to the events, talks about how in our town we like to know the facts about everybody. But then two pages earlier in the script, that same narrator character has said, Polish town's over the tracks. And then Polish town is never mentioned after the first act. It is hard to read our town now for me and not ask, Whose town? And whose town is it not? Whose story is this? Because reading Our Town in 2020, it feels like the story, as one of the folks who gathered last Sunday put it, drips with privilege. It is, it is quintessential, sure, but rather than being quintessential of a universal experience, it is quintessential about a small town, white, affluent, married, and in New England. And that's hardly a universal story. The third step of the exegesis process, this drawing out of meaning from a story, is to look at the context that the story exists in. And this is where things get really, really interesting for me, particularly with this play. Because you would think, to this point, that the author of this play must have known New England well, must have known small town life well, must have known marriage well, to paint such a particular portrait of a town and its people. But here's the thing, Thornton Wilder, not from New England. He was born in Wisconsin. His parents were diplomats. He grew up spending most of his life in Asia and Europe. Thornton Wilder never married. He was good friends with Gertrude Stein. He wrote the third act of Our Town in at least one telling after an evening walk in the rain in Zurich with his friend and possibly lover Samuel Stewart. And more perhaps prosaically, but 
still illuminating, the narrator of our town locates Grover's Corners, New Hampshire at latitude 42 degrees, 40 minutes, longitude 70 degrees, 37 minutes. In fact, those coordinates are not in New Hampshire. <laughs> they are instead in the North Atlantic, <laughs> off the coast of Rockport, Massachusetts. So Thornton Wilder was writing about small town life in New England, but what he knew of this place that he drew up was the knowledge of someone passing through, spending summers in New Hampshire. So is it Thornton Wilder's town? Is he part of the hour that he wrote about? The last step of the process is to, is to draw what meaning and connections there might be in, in all of that. So here's what I keep coming back to in our town. Who's the relationship between the story and the storyteller? The story, the storyteller, and the audience. Because here we have this iconic story of small town married life told by somebody from an entirely different world. And what does it mean that he is the one telling the story? What does that mean for the story itself? What does that mean for Thornton Wilder? And what does that mean for us, hearing it and trying to understand what this piece of art means? So this is an important question for us to think about as we think about wisdom and where we get wisdom from and what wisdom might be found in stories. Do stories depend on the person telling them or do they have some kind of life of their own? My instinct, what I want to say, is that the story stand on, stands on its own, that sometimes there's a universal story that has meaning outside of its author. That's the point I was trying to make on Stu Kearns' show about the prodigal son. That there is meaning to that story, whether or not an author named Matthew accurately quoted a rabbi named Jesus 2,000 years ago. But stories are not wholly independent things. They are not words stored on a page. They are living things. Each time they are told, there are at least three people involved. The person that wrote the story, or first told the story, the person telling the story now, and the person hearing the story. And each of those people brings a certain wisdom to the experience that exists outside the content of the story itself. Each time stories are told, they evolve and change in meaning. There's a line from Doctor Who, the TV show. And the doctor says, you won't remember me. Well, you'll remember me a little. I'll be just a story in the back of your mind. That's okay. We're all stories in the end. Just make it a good one. There's one last stumbling block for me in our town. 
the version of the play that we read, the reading this morning, the narrator, the stage manager gets up at the end of the second act at the wedding and says, I have married over 200 couples in my day. Do I believe in it? I don't know. M marries N, millions of them, the cottage, the go-kart, the Sunday afternoon drives in the Ford, the first rheumatism, the grandchildren, the second rheumatism, the deathbed, the reading of the will. Once in a thousand times, it's interesting. I've not presided at 200 weddings yet. Yet, I will get there. But there have been 200 people here in this room this morning. And there will be 200 stories. There have been 200 stories in this room, more than that. And each is fascinating. Each contain multitudes. In the end, maybe that is the stumbling block between a playwright and a person doing religion. But the stories that are untold, the stories that are in this room are, are just as fascinating as the stories that become plays that are done by 15-year-olds in upstate New York. These stories matter, the stories of each person here. So for our town, as the stage manager would say, the story is a good one. But it's also one that depends on the interplay between author, story, and listener. Whose town is it? Whose story? Thornton Wilder's story? George and Emily's? Ours, all of us, as we experience it? What wisdom that we gather from the story depends on how we answer that question each time that we talk about it or think about it. It might be all of those at once, and at the same time, none of them. The story lives in some way that transcends any immediate context. So this is wisdom and stories. That they are a way to connect across who we are, a way to experience lives not our own, a way to mediate experience and think about what it means to experience stories that are not our own and to tell our own stories. Amen and blessed be.